For a relatively small country, Ireland has had a dramatic impact on world literature. Influenced by Celtic mythology and Gaelic poetry, some of the world's best-known writers such as W.B. Yeats, James Joyce, George Bernard Shaw, and Samuel Beckett all came from Ireland. Welcome again to Trinity Rep Radio Theatre, the monthly exploration of dramatic literature with members of the Trinity Repertory Company. Today we'll be hearing works from Oscar Wilde, Lady Gregory, and James Joyce, running the gamut from comedy to tragedy. I'm Bob C., and with me as usual is Trinity Rep Artistic Director Kurt Columbus. Welcome, Kurt. Happy to be here as always, Bob. Thank you. And our performers, Janice Duclos. Hi, Bob. Stephen Thorne. Hello, Bob. And Rachel Warren. Hi. Kurt, how did you select the pieces for today's program? Well, Bob, you know, we have a play running on our stages right now called Dublin Carol. Uh, It's by a writer named Connor McPherson, and he's one of the young generation of Irish playwrights. And we were intrigued by this notion of the Irish voice, the Irish literary voice, the quality that of um, humor and uh, wit and um, acerbic wit and darkness, all of those sort of things that you think about as being uh, inherent in Irish literature. And it, it struck us that once we started looking at it, Um, you could trace the roots of what we consider to be contemporary Irish literature to this sort of small clump of raw material, if you will, that there's a a very small group of writers whose influence is felt here, you know, a century and more later in contemporary Irish literature. So we chose to do um, adaptations of three writers, uh, a short play by Lady Gregory um, called The Workhouse Ward, and then also a short story by Oscar Wilde, we'll talk about him as a choice as an Irish writer a little bit later, called The Happy Prince, and then an excerpt from James Joyce's The Dead, which is perhaps one of the greatest and most celebrated uh, short uh, Irish fiction works of the 20th century. The first piece is by Lady Gregory. Could you tell us about her? Yeah. Lady Gregory's an interesting character. She's a, a an upper-class uh, Anglo-Irish woman she, at the time of her husband's death, she decided to, um, as she put it, convert to cultural natu- nationalism. You know, she became uh, um, this Irish nationalist. And um, she founded uh, what is now the Irish National Theatre called The Abbey with W.B. Yeats. And she wrote many plays um, and, and was considered one of the great sort of founders of Irish literature and particular Irish theater. So we thought we'd include Lady Gregory because she's not included that often. The Workhouse Word was written in 1908, and it's a a short play that takes place in a hospital ward of a poorhouse in Clun. And we'll find two elderly bedridden residents, um, Mike McInerney and Michael Miskell, and those will be read by Stephen Thorne and by Janice Duclos, who we'll, we'll be reading. Um, we're doing a little bit of non-traditional casting here because Janice is multifaceted and she'll be reading <laughs> Michael Miskell. Um, and then they, these two uh, elderly bedridden men receive a visit from Mrs. Donahue, um, who's uh, going to be read by Rachel Warren. Let's hear The Workhouse Ward by Lady Gregory. Isn't it a hard case, Mike McInerney, myself and yourself, to be left here in the bed and at the feast day of St. Goldman and the rest of the ward attending on the mass? 
Is it sitting up by the hearth your wish will to be, Michael Miskell, with cold in the shoulders and with speckled shins? Let you rise up so, and you well able to do it. Not like myself, that has pains the same as tin tacks within, in my inside. If you have pains within, in your inside, there's no one can see it or know of it the way they can see my own knees that are swelled up with the rheumatism, and my hands that are twisted and ridges the same as an old cabbage stalk. It's easy to be talking about soreness and about pains, and they may be not to be in it at all. To open me and to analyse me, you would know what sort of a pain and soreness I have in my heart and in my chest. Ah. But I'm not like yourself to be cursing and praying and tormenting the time the nuns are at hand, thinking to get a bigger share than myself of the nourishment and of the milk. That's the way you do be picking at me and faulting me. I had a share and a good share in my early time, and it's well you know that, and the both of us reared in Skahana. You may say that indeed, we are both of us reared in Skahana. <laughs> Little wonder you to have good nourishment the time we were both rising, and you bringing away my rabbits out of the snare. And you didn't bring away my own eels, I suppose. Ah. I was after sparing in the tall... <laughs> Selling them to the nuns in the convent you did, and letting on they to be your own. For you are always a cheater and a schemer, grabbing every earthly thing for your own profit. And you were no grabber yourself, I suppose, till your land and all you had grabbed were away from you. If I lost it itself, it was through the crosses I met with. I never was a rambler and a card player like yourself, Mike McInerney, that ran through all and lavished it unknown to your mother. Lavished it, is it? And if I did, was it you yourself led me to lavish it or some other one? It is on my own floor I would be today and in the face of my family, but for the misfortune I had to be put with a bad next-door neighbour that was yourself. What way did my means go from me? Spending on fencing, spending on walls, making up gates, putting up doors that would keep every four-footed beast you had from praying and trespassing on my oats and my little lock of hay. Oh, listen to you, and I striving to please you, and to be kind to you, and to close my ears to the abuse you would be calling and letting out of your mouth oh, yeah. to trespass on your crops, is it? It's little temptation there was for my poor beast to ask to cross the mountain. My God almighty, what had you but a little corner of a field? What did you say to my garden that your two pigs had destroyed on me? It was the west wind, I suppose, that devoured my green cabbage and that rooted up my champion potatoes. What are you saying? The two quietest pigs ever I had. They were not quiet, but very ravenous pigs you had that time. As active as a fox they were, killing my young ducks. Oh, once they had blood tasted, you couldn't stop them. And what happened the time I was passing your door? Two brazen dogs that rushed out and took a pace of me. Thinking you were a wild beast, they did that had made it escape out of the travelling show with the red eyes of you and the ugly face of you and the two crooked legs of you that couldn't hardly stop a pig in a gap. Sure, any dog that had any life in it at all would be roused and stirred seeing the like of you going down the road. <laughs> I did well taking out a summons against you that time. It's a great wonder you not have been bound over through your lifetime but the laws of England is queer. 
Isn't it a bad story for me to be wearing out my days beside you? If it is a bad story for you, Michael Miskell, it is a worse story again for myself. your lies and your chat and your arguing and your contrary ways, for there's no one under the rising sun could stand you. I tell you, you're not behaving as in the presence of the Lord. But is it wishful for my death you are? Let it come, and meet me now, and welcome, so long as it will part me from yourself. Amen to that. But let the whole world separate us till the day of judgment, for I would not be laid near you at the seven churches. It's sooner than ten pound in my hand, I to know that my shadow and my ghost will not be knocking about with your shadow and your ghost, and the both of us waiting our time. I'd sooner be delayed in purgatory. Now, have you anything to say? I have everything to say if I had but the time to say. You let me up out of this till I choke you. You scolding punk. You wait a while. Wait a while yourself. Uh, Whist, 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 whist. (coughs) Somebody's coming. They bade me come up here by the stair. I was never in this place at all. I don't know, am I right? Which one of the two is Mike McInerney? Who, who is it calling me by my name? Oh, sure, am I your sister? Honour McInerney that was, that now is Honour Donahoe. So you are, I believe. <laughs> I didn't know you. It is time indeed for you to come see me, and I in this place five year or more, thinking me to be no credit to you, I suppose, among that tribe of Donahoe's. I wonder they to give you leave to come ask am I living yet or dead. Ah, oh, sure, I buried the whole string of them. Himself was the last to go. The Lord be praised, he got a fine natural death, and he got a lovely funeral. My poor John Donahoe, a nice clean man. You couldn't be but fond of him. Very severe on the tobacco he was. But he wouldn't touch the drink. And is it in... Current row, you are living yet. It is so. He left all to myself, but it is a lonesome thing, the head of the house, to have died. Why, well, I, I hope that he has left you a nice way of living. Fair enough, fair enough. A wide, lovely house I have. A few acres of grassland. The grass does be very sweet that grows among the stones. And as to the say, there is something from it every day of the year. A handful of periwinkles to make the kitchen. You have all that? Mm. And you without her a man in the house? It is what I am thinking. Yourself might come and keep me company. It is no credit to me, a brother of my own, to be in this place at all. I'll go, Richard. Let me out of this. I don't know. I, I was ignorant of you being kept to the bed. I am not kept to it. But maybe an odd time when there is a colic rises up within me. My stomach always gets better the time there is a change in the moon. I'd like well to draw near you my heavy blessing on you, Honour Donahoe, for the hand you have held out to me this day. Mm, sure, you could be keeping the fire in mm-hmm. and milking the goat yes. and maybe putting out the cabbage plants in their time, <laughs> for when the old man died, the garden died. Oh, I, I could, to be sure, and be cutting the potatoes for seed. <laughs> what luck could there be in a place and not a man to be in it? 
Is that now a suit of clothes you've brought with you? It is so. The way you will be tasty coming in among the neighbours at Curran Row. Oh, my joy you are. It is well you earned me. Let me up out of this. And uh, is it going out of this you are? Mike McInerney. Don't you hear I am going to Curran Row? I am going. Going I am to a place where I will get every good thing. And is it to leave me here after <laughs> you? You will? Every good thing. The coat and the goat and the kid are there. The, the sheep and the lamb are there. Ploughing and seed sowing. No talk about the rent. Spending and getting and nothing scarce. Sport and pleasure. And music on the strings. Age will go from me and I will be young again. Mike, is it truth you're saying? You're to go from me and to leave me with rude people. People of every parish. And they having no respect for me. Or no wish for me at all. Oh, wish, 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 wish now, and I'll, I'll leave you my pipe. <laughs> and I'll engage it. It is honour Donahoe won't refuse to be sending you a few ounces of tobacco in ah, our time. What signifies tobacco? All that I'm craving is the talk. There to be no one at all to say out to whatever thought might be rising in my innate mind. To be lying here and no conversable person in it be the abomination of misery. Uh, look now, Honour. It's what I often heard said. Two be better than one. Sure, if you had an old trouser with full of holes, or a skirt, <laughs> wouldn't you put another in under it that might be as tattered as itself, and the two of them together would make some sort of a decent show? Oh, what are you saying? There's no holes in that suit I brought you it, now. It is what I'm thinking, Honor. I do be weak an odd time. Any load I would carry it preys upon my side. And this man does be weak an odd time with the swelling in his knees. But the two of us together, it's not likely it is. After one time we would fail. Bring... The both of us with you, Honour, and the both of us together will make one good hardy man. Is it queer in the head you're growing, asking me to bring in a stranger off the road? Uh, I am not, ma'am, but an old neighbour I am. Michael Miskell, I am, that was in the next house to you in Skahana. For pity's sake, Michael Miskell, is it? That's worse again. Yourself and Mike that never left fighting and scolding and attacking one another. Well, all the quarrelling that ever was in the place, it was myself that did it. Sure, his anger rises fast and goes away like the wind. Bring him out with myself now, Honour Donahoe, and God bless you. Well, then I will not bring him out. And I will not bring yourself out and you not to learn better sense. <laughs> Are you making yourself ready to come? I am thinking, maybe... It is a mean thing for a man that is shivering into seventy years to go changing from place to place. Well, take your luck or leave it. All I asked was to save you from the hurt and harm of the air. Bring the both of us with you, or I will not stir out of this. Give me back my fine suit so, till I go look for a man of my own. Let you go so, as you are so unnatural and so disobliging, <gasps> and look for some man of your own, God help him, for I will not go with you at all. It is too much time I lost with you, and dark night waiting to overtake me on the road. Let the two of you stop together in the back of my hand to you. 
It is I will leave you there, the same as God left the Jews. Hmm. Maybe the house is not so wide as what she says. Why wouldn't it be wide? Ah, there does be a good deal of middling poor houses down by the sea. What would you know about wide houses? Whatever sort of house you had yourself, it was too wide for the provision you had into it. Whatever provision I had in my house, it was a wholesome provision, a natural provision. Her softener, periwinkles. Periwinkles is a hungry sort of fool. Now, now stop your impudence and your chatter, or it will be the worse for you. I'd bear with my own father and mother as long as any man would, but if they'd vex me, I would give them the length of rope as soon as another. I would never ask at all to go eating periwinkles. Who in the world wide is asking you to eat them? You're as tricky as a fish in a full tide. Oh, tricky is it? Oh, my curse and the curse of the four and twenty men upon you. That the worm may chew you from skin to marabone. I'll leave my death on you, you scheme oh, and bag of My tribes, I'll pull out your pin feathers. Oh, you tyrant. You big bully, you. You take this so, you stabbing ruffian, you. The Workhouse Ward by Lady Gregory. What a hilarious couple of characters. Uh, it's, it's the sort of thing when you hear it, it's like the quintessential right. Irish comic situation. It Two is. characters who seemingly hate each other and can't stand being away from each other. And it's the talk that keeps them alive somehow, right. that, that it's their conversation with one another um, and that's the, the thread that one sees throughout uh, you know, Irish literature and drama of the 20th century, you, you can imagine these guys not only in, in this Lady Gregory play from 1908, but then in Samuel Beckett in the, the 1950s or in a Martin McDonough or a Connor McPherson play today. I mean, they're, they're still the same characters a hundred years later. Janice. Yes, and I, I, what I really love about this is the fact that um, these guys so love the language and they love the sport, the wit. There's really nothing malicious about it, but there's a real respect for the one-upmanship to be able to put one over <laughs> on the other guy. And they really, they reject the sentimentality. I love this, this scene at the end after... Uh, Michael <laughs> McInerney has rejected Mrs. Donahoe's offer. And, um, you know, he's done a really sweet thing for his friend. And the way they try to acknowledge to each other that this has been done, you know, there's there's no sentiment in it. It's just, well, let's get back to the way things work. <laughs> well, the next piece we're going to hear is by someone we usually associate with comedy, and that's Oscar Wilde. But this is a very different piece Yes, yes, it is. Um, uh, this is actually an adaptation of Oscar Wilde's uh, short story, The Happy Prince, as, as The Workhouse Ward was actually an adaptation for the radio theater. The Happy Prince is, is in a form of a fairy tale. And he takes this form and he, he you know, he imbues it with his wit. And every, every little thing is sort of twisted and some things are sort of turned on their head as to what your expectations are for the fairy tale form. It's the fairy tale as presented by Oscar Wilde. We're going to hear The Happy Prince, performed by Rachel Warren, Stephen Thorne, Janice Duclos, and Kurt Columbus. 
High above the city, on a tall column, stood the statue of the happy prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes he had two bright sapphires, and a large red ruby glowed on his sword-hilt. He was very much admired, indeed. "'He is as beautiful as a weathercock,' remarked one of the town councillors, who wished to gain a reputation for having artistic tastes. "'Only not quite so useful.' he added, fearing lest people should think him unpractical, which really he was not. One night there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had gone away to Egypt six weeks before, but he had stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful reed. He had met her early in the spring, and as he was flying down the river after a big yellow moth, and he had been so attracted by her slender waist that he had stopped to talk to her. "'Shall I love you?' said the swallow, who liked to come to the point at once, and the reed made him a low bow. "'It is a ridiculous attachment,' twittered the other swallows. "'She has no money, and far too many relations.' And indeed the river was quite full of reeds." Then, when the autumn came, they all flew away. After they had gone, he felt lonely and began to tire of his lady love. She has no conversation, and I am afraid that she is a coquette, for she is always flirting with the wind. And certainly, wherever the wind blew, the reed made the most graceful curtsies. I admit that she is domestic, but I love traveling, and my wife, consequently, should love traveling also. Finally, he said to her, Will you come away with me? But the reed shook her head. She was so attached to her home. You have been trifling with me. I am off to the pyramids. Goodbye. And he flew away. All day long he flew, and at night time he arrived at the city. Oh, where shall I put up? I hope the town has made preparations. Then he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up there. It is a fine position with plenty of fresh air. So he alighted just between the feet of the happy prince. I have a golden bedroom, he said, as he looked round, and he prepared to go to sleep. But just as he was putting his head under the wing, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing! There is not a single cloud in the sky. The stars are quite clear and bright, and yet it is raining. The climate in the north of Europe is really dreadful. The reed used to like the rain, but that was merely her selfishness. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off? I must look for a good chimney pot. And he determined to fly away. But before he had opened his wings, a third drop fell, and he looked up and saw... Ah, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears, and tears were running down his golden cheeks. His face was so beautiful in the moonlight that the little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you? I am the happy prince. Why are you weeping, then? You have quite drenched me. When I was alive and had a human heart, I did not know what tears were, for I lived in the palace of Sansusi, where sorrow is not allowed to enter. In the daytime... I played with my companions in the garden, and in the evening I led the dance in the great hall. Round the garden ran a very lofty wall, but I never cared to ask what lay beyond it. Everything about me was so beautiful. My courtiers called me the happy prince, and happy indeed I was, if pleasure be happiness. So I lived, and so I died. And now that I am dead, they have set me up here so high that... I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city, 
and though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot choose but weep. Said the swallow to himself, But is he not solid gold? He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. Far away, far away, in a little street, there is a poor house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn, and she has coarse red hands, all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. She is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the queen's maids of honor to wear at the next court ball. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever and is asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water, so he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal, and I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Soon they will go to sleep in the tomb of the great king. He is wrapped in yellow linen and embalmed with spices. Round his neck is a chain of pale green jade, and his hands are like withered leaves. Swallow, swallow, little swallow. Will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty and the mother so sad. I don't think I like boys. Last summer when I was staying on the river, there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides, I come of a family famous for its agility. But still, it was a mark of disrespect. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It is very cold here. But I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow. So the swallow picked out of the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover. I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball, she said. I have ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it, but the seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river, and at last he came to the poorhouse and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed, and the mother had fallen asleep, she was so tired. In he hopped and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then he flew gently round the bed, fanning the boy's forehead with his wings. "'How cool I feel,' said the boy. "'I must be getting better.' And he sank into a delicious slumber." Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, but I feel quite warm now, although it is so cold. That is because you have done a good action, said the prince. And the little swallow began to think, and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. What a mar remarkable phenomenon, said the professor of ornithology as he was passing over the bridge. A swallow in winter. And he wrote a long letter about it to the local newspaper. Everyone quoted it. It was so full of so many words that they could not understand. Tonight I go to Egypt, said the swallow. And he was in high spirits at the prospect. Wherever he went, the swallows chirped and said to each other, What a distinguished stranger. So he enjoyed himself very much. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? I am just starting. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not stay with me 
one night longer. I am waited for in Egypt. Tomorrow, my friends will fly up to the second cataract. On a great granite throne sits the god Memnon. All night long he watches the stars, and when the morning star shines, he utters one cry of joy, and then he is silent. At noon, the yellow lions come down to the water's edge to drink. They have eyes like green barrels, and their roar is louder than the roar of the cataract. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, far away across the city, I see a young man in a garret. He is leaning over a desk covered with papers, and in a tumbler by his side there is a bunch of withered violets. His hair is brown and crisp, and his lips are red as a pomegranate, and he has large and dreamy eyes. He's trying to finish a play for the director of the theater, but he's too cold to write any more. There is no fire in the grate, and hunger has made him faint. I will wait. With you one night longer, shall I take him another ruby? Alas, I have no ruby now. My eyes are all that I have left. They are made of rare sapphires, which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Pluck out one of them and take him. Take it to him. He will sell it to the jeweler and buy food and firewood and finish his play. Dear prince, I cannot do that. And he began to weep. Swallow. Swallow, little swallow, do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eye, and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in, as there was a hole in the roof. The young man had his head buried in his hands, so he did not hear the flutter of the bird's wings. And when he looked up, he found the beautiful sapphire lying on the withered violets. I am beginning to be appreciated," he cried. "This is from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play," and he looked quite happy. The next day, the swallow flew down to the harbor. He sat on the mast of a large vessel and watched the sailors hauling big chests out of the hold with ropes. "I'm going to Egypt," cried the swallow, but nobody minded. And when the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. I am come to bid you goodbye. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not stay with me one night longer? It is winter, and the chill snow will soon be here. In Egypt, the sun is warm on the green palm trees. My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek, and the pink and white doves are watching them and cooing to each other. Dear prince, I must leave you, but I will never forget you. And next spring, I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you have given away. In the square below, there stands a little match girl. She has let her matches fall in the gutter, and they are all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she does not bring home some money, and she is crying. <laughs> she has no shoes or stockings, and her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her, and her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind then. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, do as I command you. So he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. What a lovely bit of glass! cried the little girl, and she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, so I will stay with you always. 
No, little swallow, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you, always, said the swallow, and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the Sphinx. He is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything. And of the King of the Mountains of the Moon. He is as black as ebony and worships a large crystal. And of the green snake. He sleeps in a palm tree and has twenty priests to feed him with honey cakes. And of the pygmies. They sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies. Dear little swallow, you tell me of marvelous things. But more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and of women. There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms to try and keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman, and they wandered out into the rain. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, you must take it off, leaf by leaf, and give it to the poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off till the happy prince looked quite dull and gray. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor, and the children's faces grew rosier, and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came, and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver, they were so bright and glistening. Long icicles, like crystal daggers, hung down from the eaves of the houses. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings, but at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow. You have stayed too long here, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt that I am going. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the prince on the lips, and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment a curious crack sounded inside the statue, as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning the mayor was walking in the square below, in company with the town councillors. He looked up at the statue. Dear me! How shabby the happy prince looks. How shabby, oh, shabby indeed. Shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor. And they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword. His eyes are gone, and he's golden no longer. In fact, he's little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar. <laughs> little better than a beggar. <laughs> and here is actually a dead bird at his feet. 
We really must issue a proclamation that birds are not allowed to die here. The town clerk made a note of the suggestion, so they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, and it shall be a statue of myself. Of myself. myself. Of myself. Said each of the town councillors, and they quarrelled. When I last heard of them, they were quarrelling still. What a strange thing! Said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry, "This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away." So they threw it on a dust heap, where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city," said God to one of his angels, and the angel brought him the leaden heart, and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen," said God, "for in my garden of paradise this little bird shall sing for evermore, and in my city of gold the happy prince shall praise me." The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde, performed by Rachel Warren, Stephen Thorne, Janice Duclos, and Kurt Columbus. Janice, this is certainly a different side of Oscar Wilde, certainly different from the one we're used to in The Importance of Being Earnest and other plays. What do you especially like about this story? What, what, what I love about this story is the fact that he, he dashes expectations just when you think you know how things are going to progress, like the way he... You know, he talks about the poor matchstick girl, and he talks about the poor little boy who's dying in the bed, and then he talks about the poor playwright, who, and who seems to be a perfect description of himself, and the fact that, that he doesn't have any supporters. And um, I, I, I just think that his, his sense of humor and his sense of justice to the way he is able to skewer institutions in the story, the town councilors and the the um the anthropologist and hmm. the art professor it's all he he's just delightful so the wit the wit is definitely there absolutely well, and he, you know what's interesting bob he, he, i i think if most of our listeners were asked before this show is oscar wilde an irish writer they would say no i i think we we hmm. tend to equate him with a mid 19th century uh british sensibility and you start to realize that Wilde, you know, he he was born in Ireland. Um, he he was educated at um, Trinity College in Dublin before going to Oxford, and um, he didn't actually leave Ireland for good until uh, he he had a marriage proposal declined by a woman who later married Bram Stoker. But that's a whole other program, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, he, here's a guy that we consider to be English, and yet through his Irish trickery. <laughs> He makes commentary on this other situation, these other people, and it's really quite remarkable. And uh, Rachel, did you have a comment about this story? I I adore. We you know we we talked a lot actually about the ending. We mm. debated about you know, and suddenly there's God. Story, <laughs> you know, and 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 what that you know, and that it's not. It's sort of ambiguous. It's sort of hard to know what to make of it. You know, and what God says. You know, bring me the two most precious things in the city. And the angel brings him the lead heart and the dead bird. And he says, you've rightly chosen, for in my garden of paradise, this bird shall sing forevermore, and in my city the happy prince shall praise me. So in a way, it's like, 
even I don't know. It's debatable. Like, yeah. what's the point he's making? Even God is Talking sort of like the, the people in the gold. town. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, the yeah, point yeah. of all these wonderful uh, things that the you know that these the bird and the prince had done together was glor self glorification for God. Which well, you know <laughs> it's it is it. And the the notion of the twist again that every exactly. there's nothing that is purely romantic that yeah. is purely uh, sentiment, but it's always got that little. Yeah. Turn up the it's screen. not as simple, not a simple morality tale. Right. Well, of course, when we think of Irish literature, we, James Joyce comes to mind, and especially his work, The Dead. We're going to be hearing an excerpt from that. And uh, Janice, why don't you tell us about what we're going to hear? Well, this is an adaptation of the final portion of jo- Joyce's short story, The Dead. Um, this is where we, we will meet Gabriel and Greta, who are husband and wife, and they're about to leave the annual all-night holiday party at the Dublin home of Gabriel's elderly aunts, Kate and Julia, and this takes place in 1904. And in Joyce's story and our adaptation, we're able to hear the characters' thoughts as well as what they speak aloud. Let's hear an excerpt from The Dead by James Joyce, performed by Stephen Thorne and Rachel Warren. I struggled into my overcoat and looked round the hall. Who's playing up there? Someone is fooling at the piano. I had not gone to the door with the others. I was in a dark part of the hall, gazing up the staircase. A woman was standing near the top of the first flight, in the shadow also. It was my wife, Greta. She was leaning on the banisters, listening to something. I was surprised at her stillness, and strained my ear to listen also but I could hear little save the noise of laughter on the front steps, a few chords struck on the piano and a few notes of a man's voice singing. There was grace and mystery in Greta's attitude, as if she were a symbol of something. The hall door closed, and the voice in the piano could be heard more clearly. The song seemed to be in the old Irish tonality. The voice faintly illuminated the cadence of the air with grief. Greta came down the stairs towards us, a few steps behind her were Mr. Bartell Darcy and Miss O'Callaghan. They say we haven't had snow like this for thirty years. I read this morning in the newspapers that the snow is general all over Ireland. She paused right under the dusty fanlight. The flame of the gas lit up the rich bronze of her hair, which I had seen her drying by the fire a few days before. I saw that there was color on her cheeks and that her eyes were shining. A sudden tide of joy went leaping out of my heart. We were shepherded to the door. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Greta was walking ahead with Mr. Bartell Darcy, her hands holding her skirt up from the slush. The morning was still dark. A dull yellow light brooded over the houses and the river, and the sky seemed to be descending. It was slushy underfoot, and only streaks and patches of snow lay on the roofs. The blood went bounding along my veins, and my thoughts went rioting through my brain. Proud, joyful, tender, valorous, I longed to run after her noiselessly, catch her by the shoulders, and say something foolish and affectionate into her ear. She seemed so frail that I longed to defend her against something, and then to be alone with her. Moments of our secret life together burst like stars upon my memory. A heliotrope envelope was lying beside my breakfast cup, and I was caressing it with my hand. 
birds were twittering in the ivy, and I could not eat for happiness. Or we were standing on the crowded platform, and I was placing a ticket inside the warm palm of her glove. I longed to recall to her those moments, to make her forget the years of our dull existence together, and remember only our moments of ecstasy. For the years had not quenched my soul or hers. Our children, my writing, her household cares had not quenched all our soul's tender fire. I longed to be alone with her. When she and I were in our room in the hotel, I would call her softly. Greta. Perhaps she would not hear once. She would be undressing. Then something in my voice would strike her. She would turn and look at me. At the corner of Wine Tavern Street, we met a cab. I was glad of its rattling noise as it saved us from conversation. When the cab drew up before the hotel, Gabriel jumped out and paid the driver. I leaned for a moment on his arm in getting out of the cab, and while standing at the curbstone bidding the others good night. She leaned lightly on my arm, as lightly as when she had danced with me a few hours before. I had felt proud and happy then, happy that she was mine, proud of her grace and wifely carriage, but now, after the kindling again of so many memories, the first touch of her body, musical and strange and perfumed, sent through me a keen pang of lust. Under cover of her silence, I pressed her arm closely to my side, and as we stood at the hotel door, I felt that we had escaped from our lives and duties, escaped from home and friends, and run away together with wild and radiant hearts to a new adventure. The porter led us along a corridor and opened a door. A ghostly light from the street lamp lay in a long shaft from one window to the door. I threw my overcoat and hat on the couch and crossed the room towards the window. I looked down into the street in order that my emotion might calm a little. Greta had taken off her hat and cloak and was standing before a large swinging mirror, unhooking her waist. I watched her for a few moments. Greta! I turned away from the mirror slowly and walked along the shaft of light towards him. Her face looked so serious and weary that the words would not pass my lips. No, it was not the moment yet. You looked tired. I am a little. I waited again, fearing that diffidence was about to conquer me. By the way, Greta... What is it? You know that poor fellow, Freddie Malins? Yes, what about him? Well... Poor fellow, he's a decent sort of chap, after all. He gave me back that sovereign I lent him, and I didn't expect it, really. Why did she seem so abstracted? Was she annoyed, too, about something? If only she would turn to me. When did you lend him the pound? I strove to restrain myself from breaking out into brutal language about the sottish Freddy Malins and his pound. I longed to cry to her from my soul, to crush her body against mine. Oh, at Christmas, when he opened that little Christmas card shop in Henry Street, I was in such a fever of rage and desire that I did not hear her come from the window. I stood before him for an instant. Then, suddenly, raising myself on tiptoe and resting my hands lightly on his shoulders, I kissed him. You are a very generous person, Gabriel. Trembling with delight at her sudden kiss and at the quaintness of her phrase... I put my hands on her hair and began smoothing it back, scarcely touching it with my fingers. The washing had made it fine and brilliant. My heart was brimming over with happiness. 
just when I was wishing for it. She had come to me of her own accord. Perhaps her thoughts had been running with mine. Perhaps she had felt the impetuous desire that was in me, and then the yielding mood had come upon her. I slipped one arm swiftly about her body and drew her towards me. Greta, dear, what are you thinking about? I did not yield wholly to his arm. Tell me what it is, Greta. I think I know what is the matter. Do I know? Oh, I'm thinking about that song Mr. Darcy sang tonight. I broke loose from him and ran to the bed, and throwing my arms across the bed rail, hid my face. What about the song? Why does that make you cry? I'm thinking about a person long ago who used to sing that song. And who was the person long ago? It was a person I used to know in Galway when I was living with my grandmother. A dull anger began to gather again at the back of my mind. Someone you were in love with? It was a young boy I used to know named Michael Fury. He used to sing that song. He was very delicate. I could see him so plainly. Such eyes he had, big, dark eyes, and such an expression in them, an expression. Oh, then you were in love with him. I used to go out walking with him. When I was in Galway. Perhaps that was why you wanted to visit Galway again. What for? How do I know? To see him, perhaps. He is dead. He died when he was only seventeen. Isn't it a terrible thing to die so young as that? I felt humiliated by the evocation of this figure from the dead. Well, I had been full of memories of our secret life together, full of tenderness and joy and desire. She had been comparing me in her mind with another. A shameful consciousness of my own person assailed me. Instinctively, I turned my back more to the light, lest she might see the shame that burned upon my forehead. I suppose you were in love with this Michael Fury? I was great with him at that time. I felt now how vain it would be to try to lead her whither I had purposed and caressed one of her hands. And what did he die of so young, Greta? Consumption, was it? I think he died for me. A vague terror seized me at this answer, as if at that hour when I had hoped to triumph, some impalpable and vindictive being was coming against me, gathering forces against me in its vague world. But I shook myself free of it with an effort of reason. Her hand was warm and moist. It did not respond to my touch, but I continued to caress it, just as I had caressed her first letter to me that spring morning. It was in the winter, about the beginning of the winter, when I was going to leave my grandmother's and come up here to the convent. And he was ill at the time, in his lodgings in Galway, and wouldn't be let out. And his people in Otterard were written to. He was in decline, they said, or something like that. I never knew rightly. Poor fellow! He was very fond of me, and he was such a gentle boy. We used to go out together, walking, you know, Gabriel, like the way they do in the country. He was going to study singing only for his health. He had a very good voice. Poor Michael Fury. Well, and then? And then it was time for me to leave Galway and to come up to the convent. He was much worse, and I wouldn't be let see him. So I wrote him a letter saying I was going up to Dublin and would he be, would be back in the summer and hoping he would be better then. Then the night before I left, 
I was in my grandmother's house in Nun's Island, packing up, and I heard gravel thrown up against the window. The window was so wet I couldn't see, so I ran downstairs, and as I, as I was, and slipped out the back into the garden, and there was the poor fellow at the end of the garden, shivering. And did you not tell him to go back? I implored of him to go home at once. I told him he would get his death in the rain, but he said he did not want to live. I can see his eyes as well as well. He was standing at the end of the wall where there was a tree. And did he go home? Yes, he went home. And when I was only a week in the convent, he died, and he was buried in Otterard, where his people came from. Oh, oh the day I heard that, that he was dead. She flung herself face down on the bed, sobbing in the quilt. I held her hand for a moment longer, irresolutely, and then, shy of intruding on her grief, let it fall gently and walked quietly to the window. She was fast asleep. I looked for a few moments, unresentfully, on her tangled hair and half-open mouth, listening to her deep-drawn breath. So she had had that romance in her life. A man had died for her sake. It hardly pained me now to think how poor a part I, her husband, had played in her life. I watched her while she slept, as though she and I had never lived together as man and wife. I thought of what she must have been then, in that time of her first girlish beauty. I did not like to say, even to myself, that her face was no longer beautiful, but... I knew that it was no longer the face for which Michael Fury had braved death. Perhaps she had not told me all the story. I wondered at the riot of my emotions of an hour before. From what had it proceeded? From the aunt's supper, the wine and dancing, the merry-making, the pleasure of the walk along the river in the snow. Poor Aunt Julia. She, too, would soon be a shade... Soon, perhaps, I would be sitting in that same drawing-room, dressed in black. The blinds would be drawn down, and Aunt Kate would be sitting beside me, crying and blowing her nose, and telling me how Julia had died. I would cast about in my mind for some words that might console her, and would find only lame and useless ones. Yes, yes, that would happen very soon. The air of the room chilled my shoulders. I stretched myself cautiously along the sheets and lay down beside my wife. One by one we were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world, into the full glory of some passion, than fade and wither dismally with age. I thought of how she who lay beside me had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he had told her that he did not wish to live. I had never felt like that myself towards any woman, but I knew that such a feeling must be love. Tears gathered thickly in my eyes, and in the partial darkness I imagined I saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. A few light taps upon the pane made me turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. I watched sleepily the flakes silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the Bog of Allen, and farther westward softly falling into the dark, 
mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. My soul swooned slowly as I heard the snow falling faintly through the universe, and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. An excerpt from The Dead by James Joyce, read by Stephen Thorne and Rachel Warren. Truly a remarkable story, and I'd like to ask you, Stephen, as an actor, uh, what are the challenges, how are they different in performing a character like this as opposed to a character on stage? Well, uh, this is an incredible piece of writing, so you just try to stay out of the way and <laughs> and, and do some justice to it. It's It's really great. I mean, this is... A very difficult thing to adapt. I think that um, Emily and Janice did a really good job of adapting this little section. Um, and it's difficult because it's you go inside people's heads, which is something you can kind of only do in literature. You can sort of do it on the stage, but it works really well in literature. And I think in this format, it works it works pretty good too. Um, and uh, for this, you know, just trying to differentiate between what the life of the mind is. And in this case, I think it's it's intimate and there's all these sort of things going on. Actually, it's ten times more expressive than the actual dialogue that they have between each other. These are people who've been married for a long time and, and he's going through this riot of things in his head and in his heart and having all these <laughs> feelings and yet what he expresses is this very sort of limited range. So uh, those are great contrasts, I think. It's the it's the really, Bob, back to the language and this notion of the the construction you know there's a, a vague poetry that that is just ent- utterly through uh, the the stream of Joyce's writing um, and a music and a musicality we were we've mm-hmm. been talking about the accent and the lilt of the the Irish accent but you know there's a construction and a, a way in which the emotion just is is um, threaded through each of those words and so I, I think, Rachel and Stephen just performed that so brilliantly by simply performing it and not trying to layer on a, a kind of acting, but really just being truthful and honest with what's already there. And it's like Joyce is trying to really get at the truthfulness of what people really feel. Right. No matter and give what us they a say. picture not only of the, the exterior of the couples together and the moment in time uh, uh, and this particular couple together, but also then as Stephen suggesting give a, just a little window into their minds and their hearts. Well, I want to thank you all for these wonderful performances today, this great, these great pieces of Irish literature. Thank, thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you very much. Trinity Rep Radio Theater is a production of Trinity Repertory Company in association with WRNI. The producers are Emily Atkinson and Janice Duclos. The executive producer is Trinity Rep's artistic director, Kurt Columbus. Our technical director is Jim Moses. Our performers today were Janice Duclos, Stephen Thorne, and Rachel Warren. The general manager of WRNI is Joe O'Connor, and I'm Bob C. Join us again next month for Trinity Rep Radio Theater.